Greetings, friends, and welcome back to Catechesis. In this seventh lesson, we will again be considering question seven of the Baptist Catechism, which asks, What is God? In the previous lesson, we considered the first part of the answer, which is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And in this lesson, we will continue on and learn that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I would like to say three things by way of introduction. One, we must remember that God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable as we begin to speak of his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. In other words, as we speak of these attributes of God, as they are commonly called, we cannot forget that he possesses these qualities as a most pure spirit, infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably. Two, notice that these attributes of God, as they are commonly called, are different from the first set of attributes that we considered in the previous lesson, and that these attributes may be called communicable attributes. Remember that we called the attributes we considered last time incommunicable. By this, we mean that these are characteristics that God does not share with us. He is a most pure spirit, we are not. He is infinite, we are not. He is eternal, and we are not. He is unchanging, and we are not. But now we turn our attention to some things about God that he has communicated to us or shared with us. We share these things in common with him to one degree or another. Like God, we are beings. We are capable of having wisdom, power, and holiness. We are capable of being just, good, and true to one degree or another. Three, when we talk about these communicable attributes of God, we must remember that in God, they are perfections. When describing other human beings, we might say things like, you know, so-and-so is a pretty good guy. He's very honest. He's wise. Of course, what we mean is that so-and-so is relatively good, honest, and wise. They have a measure of goodness, honesty, and wisdom. But when we speak of God's attributes, we are talking about things that are perfect in him. God is not a pretty good guy. He is good, perfectly good, infinitely good. Also, God does not possess wisdom as if he gained it over time. He is wisdom and the source thereof. As I have said, uh, the qualifiers, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, are important because they clarify that we are not here talking about qualities and characteristics of God that he possesses in measure or to one degree or another, but we are talking about what he is what he has always been and what he will be in perfection for all eternity. So the question is this, what is God? And the answer is that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So let us now talk about each of these attributes, or better yet, perfections of God, one at a time. First, let us consider the being of God. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. When we talk about someone's being, we are talking about their existence. God is a being. He exists and has life. You also are a being. You exist and have life. We share this in common with God. God is a divine being, and you are 
a human being. We both exist. We are alive. But there is a great difference between God's being and ours. You and I are finite beings. God is an infinite being. You and I are created beings, but God is an eternal being. You and I are mutable beings. We change as we are impacted by things external to us. But God is an immutable being. Never does he undergo change. You and I are dependent beings. This means we cannot exist even for a moment without the support of things external to us. We came to be through a father and mother. We depended upon them for life when we were young. Even in adulthood, we are thoroughly dependent creatures. We depend upon air, water, and food. We cannot exist apart from these things. We need clothing and shelter. In fact, we could not exist at all apart from the universe that surrounds us. And even more fundamental than all of this, we depend upon God for our existence. For he is our creator, and he is also our sustainer. Paul was right to speak of God in this way, saying, In him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. Acts 17.28-29 But God is not a dependent being. He is purely independent. He owes his existence to no one, and he depends upon nothing at all outside of himself for sustenance. God does not have parents. He does not need air to breathe, food to eat, or water to drink. He does not need a universe to live in. He existed before and exists apart from the heavens and earth that he created, but he has determined to manifest his glory in these realms. God does not need us, friends. He is not dependent upon our love and obedience, but he is perfect and complete in his eternal being. The name of God which communicates this most clearly is that name that he revealed to Moses in the burning bush. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God simply is. And it is not so simple with us. Our existence had a beginning and is dependent upon many things. You and I have grown and matured in many ways. You and I are the sum total of many qualities and parts. Our existence is not simple existence. We are very complex creatures. But God is simple. He simply is. He, therefore, is called I am. In summary, God and man are beings. We share this in common. But you and I are human beings. God is the divine being. He is a most pure spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. God is also infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. Uh, For us, wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. You and I have some wisdom. We know some true things, and we sometimes live according to the truth that we know. To the degree that we do this, we may be called wise. We struggle to do what is wise, in part because we are not omniscient. There are many things that we do not know. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. We do not know the thoughts and intentions of others. It is sometimes even hard for us to know the thoughts and intentions of our own heart. Therefore, we do not act always according to wisdom. 
But God is not bound by these creaturely limitations. God is simply wisdom. He is the source of it. He did not obtain it. He did not come to have wisdom, but he is rather wisdom itself. He is the source of it. We are said to be wise when we conform to God, receive his truth, and live in obedience to him. This is why the scriptures say in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And in Psalm 14.1, things are put negatively. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. God's wisdom is displayed in the created world. It is displayed in his word, and it is displayed in his plan for the redemption of his elect. Concerning the wisdom of God displayed in his plan of redemption, the Apostle Paul exclaimed, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul is celebrating the great wisdom of God. And here he is making the point that no one has ever given anything to God at all. No one has ever supplied him with wisdom, but rather... He is wisdom. From him and through him and to him are all things. Brothers and sisters, we would be wise to pay attention to the wisdom of God displayed in creation, in his word, which includes his law, and in his plan of salvation, and to live according to it. God is also infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power. You and I have some power, but it is really very, very small. Even the strongest man on earth is nothing before God. And this is why the scriptures say that all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. As human beings, we are truly frail. But God is omnipotent. This means that there is nothing that he cannot do that is consistent with his being. He has all power. Of course, there are some things that God cannot do. He cannot do evil. He cannot change. He cannot cease to be God. But these limitations are not due to a lack of power within God, but are owed to his perfections. God cannot do anything that would contradict him being God. In Jeremiah 32, 27, we read, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? This is, of course, a rhetorical question. Uh, The answer is no. This is a very comforting doctrine. For if we know that God is wise, then we can rest assured that his plans and purposes, his decrees, are wise. But this would not comfort us much at all if we did not also know that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power. Wise men may make wise plans, but lack the power to carry them out. I do that all the time. But God will never lack the power to bring about his wise decree. 
Next, we are to consider that God is holy. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his holiness. This perfection in God is both comforting and terrifying to sinful men and women. It is comforting in that it assures us that this God who is all-powerful cannot do that which is evil, for he is holy, that is to say, he is pure. But it is also terrifying, for we know that we will never be able to stand before this holy God in our sin. His holiness demands that he judge sin, as we will see in just a moment. This is why, again and again in the scriptures, we see men, even relatively holy men, fall to their faces when they are given a glimpse of the glory of our holy God. Isaiah 6 is one of my favorite passages. There we hear the words of the prophet saying, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings, With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips." For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God is holy and we are not. Even the best of men stand guilty before God and deserve his wrath. But God is merciful, as we will see. He has provided a way for our sins to be atoned for. Next, we learn that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his justice. Because God is holy, no sin against him will ever go unpunished, not a single one. If God, who knows and sees all, were to leave even one sin unpunished, then he would cease to be God, for then he would cease to be holy, and just. You might be thinking to yourself, well, this sounds like terrible news, for I have committed many, many sins. And you would be right. The justice of God is terrible news for the sinner, except that God has, in his infinite wisdom, determined to save sinners and to pardon them in such a way that he also remains just. This he has accomplished through a Savior who lived and died for others as a substitute. He lived a righteous life for others. He died for others, and he took upon himself the wrath of God for others. His name is Jesus, the Christ. This plan of redemption is what Paul was referring to when he said that God in this way might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is Romans 3.26. Our sins were atoned for by Jesus. If we have faith in him, then we have been justified, that is declared not guilty, by God. All others will stand before the holy God in their own sins and will be judged, for he is just. Not a single sin can go unpunished. And so we see that every sin deserves its just punishment. 
Either men pay for their own sins, or Christ has paid for them on the cross. God is the justifier of sinners, but he also remains just, as the Apostle Paul has said. Next, our catechism says that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness. God is good. He is good in himself, and he does good to others. He gives good gifts to all men. He causes it to rain upon the just and the unjust alike, the scriptures say. God is love. He is love in himself, and he has set his love upon others, even sinful men and women such as you and me. 1 John 4, 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Lastly, our catechism says that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in truth. God is truth. This means that he cannot lie. He cannot fail to keep his word. He is truth, and he has revealed truth to us by his word, and here is a firm foundation upon which we can stand. Hebrews 6.13 and following speaks to this. This is a bit of a lengthy passage, but please listen to it. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, did you hear that? It is impossible for God to lie we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God is true. God is faithful to keep his word And this is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul indeed. Let me conclude in the same way that I did in the previous lesson, and that is by highlighting the incomprehensibility of God. It is difficult to even speak of God's communicable attributes, because these things that are qualities or characteristics in us are in fact perfections within God. Our minds can comprehend being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, for we have those things to some degree. But it is difficult for us to comprehend these attributes without imperfections or boundaries. When we speak of God, our language truly does strain under the burden. And this is why you will notice theologians doing one of two things when they attempt to describe what the Bible says about God. They will either take the way of negation or the way of eminence. On the way of negation, theologians speak of God using negatives to deny creaturely things of God. 
Notice that when we say God is infinite, we are not saying what God is, but we are really talking about what he is not. We are saying he is without boundaries. We know what boundaries are. We know what limits are. Everything in the created world has them, but God does not. And so we say that he is infinite, without boundaries or limitations. On the way of eminence, theologians find the best words that they can to describe God, and then they add words like most to them to make it clear that these are perfections in God. God is not just pure, he is most pure. He is not just holy, he is most holy. We are saying that God possesses these qualities or characteristics to the uttermost degree. I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, to read chapter 2 of our confession, that is the Second London Baptist Confession, which is on God and the Holy Trinity. Especially read paragraphs 1 and 2, you will see that question 7 of our catechism, which we have been considering in this lesson and the previous one, is really a very brief summary of paragraphs 1 and 2 of chapter 2 of our confession. And as you read that section, look carefully for both the way of negation and the way of eminence that I have just described. See how our confession negates things, uh, creaturely things, takes them away from God in its description of God. God is infinite without boundaries. He is immutable. He does not change, and so on and so forth. And then also look for the way of eminence. Uh, You'll see that our confession uses words like most uh, to describe God's uh, characteristics or, or attributes. Remember that although what we are saying about God is true, God is so great that he is incomprehensible. The last thing that I will say about God's incomprehensibility is that there is a sense in which it is not even proper to speak of God's attributes. Uh, We call them attributes, and we divide God up into these categories and talk about his wisdom and his power and his goodness. Uh, We do this because it's difficult for us to speak of God. Uh, Actually, it's impossible for us to speak of God in any other way. We must consider him in these categories, in these parts. Uh, This is the way that we speak about one another. Again, we say that so-and-so is a good and generous person. We are talking about their qualities. And in man, these qualities are all considered, and when we collect them all together, into a whole, we say, that is what that person is. But God is simple. All of his attributes uh, that we consider one at a time are really one in him. They are unified in him. God is. He is the great I am. He is all of these things that we have discussed as a most pure spirit, infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably. Our God is truly great. Until next time, brothers and sisters, abide in Christ.